All right. Well, today we are starting the final chapter in the letter of 1 John. But don't get too excited. It probably takes us about a month to get through the final chapter. So, uh, but uh, like many well thought out uh, pieces of literary work, the Apostle John revisits some of the main themes as he brings his letter to a close. And he does this by summing up his thoughts about signs of true salvation, the role of love as a sign of salvation, the physical reality of Jesus Christ, and how understanding who Jesus is, which is the nature of Christ, is crucial to understanding what Jesus Christ has done for us. So let's take a look at the passage we're going to be going through today, and then we'll get into it. This is out of the letter of 1 John. So this isn't the Gospel of John. This is the letter of 1 John. But we are going to be looking a lot at the Gospel of John as well today. So if you kind of want to, if you like to follow along your Bibles, we're going to be uh, camping out on uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 13 and 14. But this is from the letter of 1 John, chapter 5. He says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. And this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, or even our faith. Just for, in case you're wondering like that, that translation when it says this is the victory that's overcome the world, even our faith, it's not saying that even our faith has been overcome. It's saying that our faith is what has overcome the world. It's just a, a way of, kind of an English way of putting it, which can be a little bit confusing sometimes. You know, one of the things that delights me and amazes me, and I've, I've shared this quite often, is the fact that even though I've spent my, almost my entire adult life, pretty much from the age of 18 on, in the, in the Word of God, studying the Scriptures, reading the Bible, I still learn something new almost every time I really go deep into it. And in fact, for me, sermon writing is the thing that has pushed me deeper into the Word. I'm not so uh, uh, blind to myself to know that if I were not a pastor, I probably would not have gone as deep into the Word as I've gotten because I wouldn't have something that pushes me into it. I kind of am thankful that the, my being called to the pastor has forced me into this. And as we've been going through the letter of 1 John, I've been struck over and over again how deeply connected it is to the gospel of John. And that really, if you don't have a very good knowledge of the gospel of John, then this letter of 1 John isn't going to make very much sense. You really have to know what is in the gospel of John to understand what the letter of John is saying here. And these opening verses are a good example. You know, everyone who believes that Christ is the, uh, Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commandments. This is love for God to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. Now, remember last week that uh, was, we were, not last week, the week before last, as, we were, as John is going into this part of his letter, and again, remember when he was writing this, there wasn't chapter and verse. It all just kind of flows as one. Chapter and verses were put in later, 
uh, to help us navigate and find things in the Bible. But he's talking about, he was talking about love. And he was talking about how the sign of salvation in our lives is the presence of a godlike love in our lives. And the word that he uses for that godlike love is agape. And agape, and it's interesting that this didn't translate over as well. This is actually in Greek, and I guess when it went over to the, the, uh, the when I transferred it to the church, the agape part didn't stay in Greek. So anyways, that's why it's there. You're wondering, what's that about? But agape is a love which acts on its own. And it acts without conditions to, to motivate it, and it acts without expectations to pull it. It just acts on its own. Sometimes we call this uh, unconditional love. And unconditional love is a sort of shorthand way of trying to understand this idea of a godlike love. And I mentioned last week, I keep thinking last week, two weeks ago, that, uh, that the, probably the closest we come to this kind of love in our natural state is our love for our children. If you have a parent and you've had children, particularly when they were babies, when we didn't really expect anything from them, we didn't, we didn't, uh, they couldn't really motivate us to love them, you know, by doing anything for us. We just loved them. We just loved them because of who we were and who they were. Now, this is a pale, pale example of God's love for us, but it's probably the closest we come to. And we don't really have this within our nature, though. When you think about it on the level of, of God's love, where, where he acts on his own, uh, even the act of creation on his own, even the act of salvation on his own. The Apostle Paul says this. He said, you see, in the book of Romans, when he's talking about this kind of love, he says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, in other words, we had nothing within us to, to could, which could compel God, to give himself for us. While we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. You know, that happens within history. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the emphasis Paul is making in this passage is that God's love was not compelled by us. We couldn't push him by our own power. It wasn't done in an expectation that we were going to, you know, become born again. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't have a guarantee as to our response to it. I think by faith, Jesus believed his death would have meaning, but at the time of his death, we were all still sinners. There's nothing we could have done to earn it, and we didn't earn it. And so mixed into this idea of, of agape love is also the concept of grace. Grace meaning to receive something without having earned it, to receive something without having to merit it. And these two things work together. The unconditional love of God, which, which acts without being compelled, without expectation, it just acts because that is his nature and character to act in this way. And grace which is also kind of the, uh, a sort of another form of love which allows us to receive the benefits of God's agape love without us having to actually earn it. And yet with that said, the Apostle John talks a lot about commandments in this passage. And this is one of the places it's important to understand this word because just like the word love can have lots of different meanings, the word, and if you misunderstand that with those, what those words mean, the words for love, 
you can, you can get a wrong message about God or a wrong message about how we are to live out our faith. In the same way, if we don't understand what the Apostle John's talking about when he uses this word command, we could also go in the wrong direction. And we have to remember that the Apostle John was a first century Christian, and he was Jewish, and Jesus was Jewish, and Paul was Jewish. In fact, all the gospel writers were Jewish except for Luke. And for the Jews to talk in the terms of command, that is their comfort zone. That is where they're comfortable in. Because command has been part of their faith ever since Moses. The law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, all this comes in the Old Testament, and this defines Judaism. It defines it. And it's easy for them to use, they speak in terms of command, and, and it's comfortable for them. Now, for many of you, maybe the word command isn't very comfortable. There's a lot of words that because of the way that you have interpreted it through your culture, be it your, your country culture, family culture, just who you are, the filters on which you hear things can alter what it means to you. Command is a good one. Love is a good one. Uh, submit is a good one. Oftentimes people, you know, they, they interpret and hear that in a certain way. Sometimes it's positive. Sometimes it's negative. It depends on the person. So it's important to understand what he's talking about here because some people hear the word command and they think legalistic command of like law of Moses. Do this, do this, do this, do this. And if you don't do these things, then you don't love God because he makes this big thing here. He says, this is love for God to obey his commands. And so if you're kind of in this place of legalism, this is easy to push you into a place of legalism if that's how you understand command. And so we need to understand what John's talking about. So what is he talking about? Well, this is the wonderful thing about the Bible. The Bible very often just answers itself. If you let the Bible interpret the Bible, then you're going to understand it much better. This is why it's important to understand the Bible, to have read the Bible. And the Apostle John interprets this whole concept in the Gospel of John. And so we're going to look at the Gospel of John, and, and, and the, the chapters where we're going to focus on is chapter 13, the last bit of it, chapter 14. We could go into chapter 15, but time will not allow us to do so. But on your own, I would encourage you this week to read the Gospel of John, the last half of chapter 13, all of 14, all of 15, and you'll understand the context of what he's talking about here when he talks about command. So let's move through it, because we got a lot to get through. So this is the Gospel of John. So in this part of the Gospel now, this is at the time of the Last Supper, Judas has just left. And after Judas leaves, Jesus and the disciples, he has this conversation with the disciples. And it's, it starts like this. It says, when he, being Judas, was gone, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. There's this uh, Monty Python movie, uh, The Quest for the Holy Grail. Have you seen that? Do you want to admit it if you did? And there's this part in there where they find the holy hand grenade and uh, they're going to attack this rabbit with fangs. And the, and the, and the instructions in the, in the thing are, thou shalt count to three, not to four, not to two, five is right out. 
you will count to three, and then you'll throw the grenade at three. You know, he's making fun of this place that the Bible will often come back on a term again and again and again. And what he does here is he comes back on this term glorified again and again and again. But it's important that he does it. Why is that? Well, it has to do with what glorified means. To be glorified means to really have your true nature revealed. When we say, in my life, Lord, be glorified, what we're saying is, in my life, Lord, have your true nature be revealed, who you really are, what's really important to you. In our church, Lord, be glorified, to have God's full nature revealed. But the reason why we don't use revealed in, that, in those terms is because also attached to this, have one's true nature revealed is an aspect of worship. In the revelation of one's true nature, there is a, a worship element to it. That's why we use this word glorified. It's, remember when Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and he changed into this, you know, he, he becomes super bright and he's glorified. His nature is revealed, who he really is. And the apostles see it and Peter says, I should, we should build little tabernacles here to worship. And so one way to understand this passage is to say, is to say you know, Jesus, when Jesus is gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is going to be revealed and God is going to be fully revealed in him. You're going to understand who I really am, what I'm really about. And if God is revealed in him, being the Son of Man in me, if he is, God will then also reveal the Son in himself. So there's this thing going on. There's this back and forth Jesus starts talking about. And this is important to get because we're walking towards what John means by command, Okay. And then he goes on to say this. He says, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, and he says the Jews, he's talking about the, the authorities. Just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Now, if you've been at IBCD for a while, you know this is one of the cornerstone verses we come back to a lot. Because the Old Testament is fulfilled, and Jesus even says this, the Old Testament is fulfilled in the command to love your neighbor, but the standard is as yourself. It's not a divine love because you don't have the divine Holy Spirit within you at that point to do it. When he's answering that question, the Holy Spirit hadn't come. But now as he's planning for the Holy Spirit to come, he says, love one another, but the standard has changed as I have loved you. So you are to love one another. And by this, all men will know you're my disciples. Why? Because in this kind of love, the character and nature of Christ is revealed. So this becomes important. The love he's talking about here is this agape love, this kind of divine love, which we don't necessarily have on our own that highest form of love. But this is where things start kind of getting a little bit interesting. Peter is not tracking with Jesus. He's stuck back at what Jesus said about him going someplace and, and them not knowing the way. And Peter's just kind of like, whoa, hold on here. Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now. That's what he said, I told the Jews I'm telling you, you can't follow. Then he says, but you'll follow later. Don't worry about it, Peter. But Peter's like, mm, he's not getting this. He says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? 
I'll lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. Now this little discussion between Jesus and Peter is actually not the main point of what Jesus, this is like a little aside. It's, it's become such a big deal for us because we know that later on Peter does deny Christ. But that's really not the main point. Jesus is making this point about his relationship with the Father, the Father's relationship with him, and then our relationship with both. And Peter's like, but you're going somewhere? He's very literal-minded here. And Jesus is like, you know, you, you'll come later. And Peter's like, I'm going to go now. And I would die for you. And Jesus, well, I don't think so. And then he gets back to his point. <laughs> he goes, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. He, he ends with this very confident statement. And this almost starts to become funny in this passage. He's this confident, you know the way to the place where I am going. And this time it's Thomas that speaks up and says, no, we don't. Lord, we don't, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And then Jesus answers, he says, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, Jesus is speaking at this very high spiritual level, and the disciples are not getting it. They're down here somewhere. They're just like, what are you talking about? What's the way? We don't know the way. I'm the way, Jesus responds. If you follow me, if you're in me, look, he says, if you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. And then he says another confident statement. And from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. To which Philip says, nah, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. I mean, it's almost like a comic routine. You know, Jesus is speaking at this very high level and, and the disciples aren't getting it at all. And so then Jesus, you can almost see him start to begin to rub his head a little bit. And he says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after all, even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Now hang on to that. That's an important revelation. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And this is also important. The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who's doing his work. That's how Jesus is, understands his relationship to the Father. It's the Father. He's not doing stuff on his own. He's not making this up as he goes along. None of this is his idea. It's the Father living in him, doing the work. Then he says, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father and you may ask for anything in my name and I will do it. Jesus says a lot in this passage. 
And we have a tendency, because we're a bit self-focused as, as people, as human beings, we tend to focus a lot on this last verse, figuring out, okay, how is it that Jesus will do anything that I ask for in his name? Because there's been things I've asked for in his name, and it hasn't happened. So is he wrong? Am I wrong? Is my formula wrong? What's going on? And what Jesus is talking about here isn't really about just being able to go to him as some cosmic Santa Claus and ask for stuff. But he's talking about the unity he has with the Father. And this unity is important. That's why he talks about the Father is in me. I am in the Father. I don't do anything on my own. Everything I do, I see that the Father tells me, and then I do it. There's a unity that is there. And this unity is important. Because what he's saying is that Jesus is unified with the Father and his nature and his character. Remember John says in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Jesus is the very character and nature of God made flesh, right? And so because Jesus is unified with the Father in nature and in character, he is also unified with the Father in purpose and intent. This is important to understand. This is how Jesus understands himself. He's unified in the nature and character of the Father. The Father is spirit, infinite spirit. Jesus says must be worshiped in spirit and truth. The Son is the word of God made flesh, the creative expression of God made flesh, the nature and character of God made flesh. And because he shares the character and nature with the Father, the Father is in him, he is in the Father, they also then are unified in their purpose and their intent. Okay? That's important to understand. That's what Jesus is saying there. Because now it starts to come to us and what it means to be in the place and having commands. Because what Jesus then does is that he extends this unity that he has with his Father to his followers, to you. You can have this unity as well. If you love me, and this is continuing in the Gospel of John, if you love me, you will obey my command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. This is what we also call the Holy Spirit. And if you read the Gospel of John, chapter 16, he talks more about the Holy Spirit. Look what he says. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him, it's a spirit, nor knows him. They don't have any kind of relationship with it. To know in the Greek isn't just a head knowledge. It's a relational knowledge. But then he tells them, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come, I will come to you. This unity is the context of command. When we look back at this is to love God is to obey his commands, it's in this context where Jesus talks about the unity that he has with the Father and the unity that we can have with God through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And this is important for us to, to get our heads around. We obey God not because we want to follow some external rule, that keeps our sinful nature in check. That's what law used to be. To obey the commands, like the Ten Commandments, do not steal, do not 
commit adultery. Do not commit murder. Uh, do not, you know, uh, covet, you know, your neighbor's whatever he's got. Those are kind of external laws that are trying to keep in check our sinful nature, which just kind of wants to be very selfish. But what this command is about is if you are in unity with God through the presence of his Holy Spirit, which Jesus actually identifies a little bit here as being him, I will come to you. It's the Spirit of God. If you, you want to, Jesus talks about this. He says, I and the Father will also come to him later on in the passage. This is this idea of death to self and being alive to Christ. We have to die to self so that the Spirit of God is what is expressed through our lives. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's why he says, some of you will do greater things than even I have done. Not because we're greater than Jesus, but because in this unity with God, where we put our selfishness aside, this, that death to self, which is symbolized through baptism, it's, uh, it's talked about uh, those who are a new creation, uh, those who are in Christ are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Uh, Paul talks about it also. I've been crucified with Christ and no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This is a concept you find all throughout the New Testament that if we want to truly glorify God, to have God revealed, if we want to have that test, if you want to say, what is that, that litmus test of salvation? It's does your life express the Spirit of God in the way you live, the way you act, who you are as a person? And this is important because this unity is what then allows us to be in this close relationship with God. And so he goes on to say, before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. And on that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. You see that, this back and forth with this unity? I am in the Father, you are in me, being Jesus, and I am in you. And then again he says, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I too will love him and show myself to him. So again, Jesus reinforces the idea here that command is in the context of unity. That if we are in this unity with the Father through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, then we will be in the place of also being unified with God's purpose and being unified with the way that God is acting in the world. And that's where obedience comes from. We obey God because we share his spirit and purpose. It's not an external obedience which is what the law of Moses was. And this is what we mean when we talk about religions that are uh, legalistic or works-based. It's rules that are external, that are trying to keep in check your sinful, selfish nature. And Jesus is saying, no, your sinful, selfish nature needs to go. You have to die to self and live in Christ, live in me and let my nature be the nature that compels you, guides you, and is expressed around you. This is what it means to be salt and light in the world. This is why we're told, you know, to have an answer for the hope that we have, but do so with gentleness and respect. We're supposed to be living examples of Christ. And we can't do that on our own. We do it because his spirit 
empowers us, changes us, transforms us to do this. And this is the unity of spirit. So let's go back now to the first John passage and with this context, reread it. This unity in spirit, character, and purpose is the context for command. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves the child as well. This is from the letter of 1 John. Now, this is very much exactly what Jesus was saying. If you love the Father, you love me. And so, basically, say, if you love the Father, then by extension, you love the Son, Jesus. And also vice versa. If you love Jesus, by extension, you love the Father because they're the, they're the same nature and character. How often have you heard people say, I like Jesus, but God, who? He seems kind of scary. They, they can't have it that way. One is the other. Jesus is the nature, the expression of God's true nature, true character. To love Christ is to love the character and nature of the Father. To love the Father is to love the character and nature of, of Christ. And this is how we know that we love the children of God. Now remember, he's writing to a church. And don't forget that the church he's writing to is struggling with sin, it's struggling with its theology of understanding who Jesus is. So when he writes this, he's not writing to a perfect church. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commandments. This is love for God to obey his commands. Now remember, the context of commandment is here, what? It's unity. Loving God brings us into unity with his purpose. If we are in unity with his purpose then following his commands will just be second nature. And this unity is made possible through the Holy Spirit. And remember, what was Jesus' command? A new command I give you. Was it, you know, to hold a certain day on the Sabbath or to not eat this or not do that? What was Jesus' command? To love one another as I have loved you. Not as you love yourself, not as if you love your kids or your dog or your cat, but as I have loved you. And the only way this is possible is through the power of the Holy Spirit. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. Why are they not burdensome? Because if we have his spirit within us, if we die to self, allow the Holy Spirit to do what it wants to do through our lives, then his commands become what we want. We're on board with it. We don't have to. It's not a burden to do. Sometimes some of you have been athletes and you played uh, like team sports. You know, I mean, practice is hard and, and it's no fun sometimes, but some of you do it because you're passionate. You want that team to win. You're willing to suffer for the sake of having that team win. And it becomes the thing you want to do. You dream about it. You think about it. I want to play basketball. Say you're a basketball, you're a football uh, fan, you know, this is what you want to do. You want to go, you want to play, you want to do, and it's sweat and you're hurt and sometimes you get injured, but you still want to do it because you are sold out to that idea. That's what he's talking about. That's why the commands aren't burdensome. If you're sold out for it, it's not a burden. Going to church isn't a burden. Being generous isn't a burden. Sharing the hope of Christ isn't a burden. Living with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control isn't a burden because you're in unity with him through the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus goes on. He goes on. We don't have time. He goes on and he finishes chapter 14. Yet another disciple has a question. 
uh, after this. And then he answers that question. Then finally, Jesus uses chapter 15 as an illustration, which is the famous, I am the vine, you are the branches. Again, unity. If a man remains in me and I in him, you will bear much fruit because we are sharing the same purpose. If you're sharing my character, you're sharing who I am, we're sharing the same purpose. You will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. And that whole chapter 15 is, again, explaining this idea of unity, being in him. And so that's the context of John 1 through 4. And yet, it brings up some uncomfortable questions, doesn't it? Because here's the fact. I mean, most of us are adults here. Many of you have been in church for a while. Here's some questions. Why are Christians so ununified? If we share the same Holy Spirit, why are we disunified? Why is there disunity? Not just in a single church, but throughout the world. I think another question is, what does it mean? If I have no passion for God's plan, or I feel like I'm not in step with what I'm told I should be passionate about. We were just talking today, the, the music team, about this music artist that I liked. His name is Keith Green. He has since died. But he wrote this one song, and, and there's this phrase in the song. And it's a, it's a song he's like hammering people with. He's like, don't you see, don't you see all the people sinking down? Don't you care, don't you care? Are you going to let them drown? How can you be so numb not to care if they come? Jesus rose from the grave. You, you can't even get out of bed. It's like, poof. You know, but isn't that the way it is sometimes? We feel like, well, I'm just not as passionate as I know I'm supposed to be. And why do I still sin? If I'm in unity with God through his Holy Spirit, why is there still sin in my life? And if you've had these questions, you're not alone. It's questions that the church that John is writing to has. It's things that they are struggling with. And it's things that we struggle with. So I was going to to get a little bit of a feedback from you guys. We can spend next week actually looking at these questions because there's answers to these questions from the scripture. Or we can just move on, continue to move on through the last chapter of the first, uh, first letter of John there. What would you prefer? Would you like a little detour to look at these questions? Or do you want to just keep moving straight ahead through the letter of 1 John? So who wants to take a little detour? All right. Well, I won't, I won't make you raise a hand if you don't want to do the detour because it looks like the detour has it. And uh, so we'll take that. We'll, we'll look at these questions next week because these are important. Because I think a lot of times we would ask ourselves, well, then, is my life reflecting the presence of the Holy Spirit? And if it is not reflecting the presence of the Holy Spirit, what does it say about my salvation? And I think that's a legitimate question. We need to be able to ask that question. We need to be able to have answers. So we'll look at that next week. But at the end, as we end this, though, I, wanted, I want you to, I would like you, if you would take the time this week to read uh, starting around uh, chap uh, chapter 13, around verse 31 of the Gospel of John, read through chapter 14, read through chapter 15, because all of that gets into what he's talking about, the unity and unity in character through his Holy Spirit, unity and purpose. In fact, if you want to read chapter 16, he talks about the Holy Spirit there. It's important. I think it's important because 
There's a lot of stuff that is told. This is what, mean, this is what it means to be a Christian, and that's what it means to be a Christian. And uh, Jesus tells us right here, the Apostle John tells us, this is what it means. And it's important for us to know it and live it, because once we know it, then we can live it. Amen? All right. The small but mighty. Let's pray. Father God, thanks for this time, and thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the way that, you know, the genius of your word, how uh, you basically define your own word. And thank you again for the Apostle John, how he, you know, wrote very deeply connected. He's very consistent in, in his writings in the gospel and what he taught in the letters that he wrote. And uh, that's, that is an amazing thing to see someone who, can, who is a, was a witness to you. And Paul was amazing, but Paul wasn't one of those original 12. John was there when you gave this speech, when you shared at that Last Supper. When you died on the cross, John was the only disciple who was there. And to, and to put these things together, Lord, it takes us deeper into you and help us to allow that, to understand that. And to deal with the uncomfortable things which come up from uh, things like this, about what it means to die to ourselves, how it seems that we have to do this again and again. And just when we think we're dead to ourselves, this little part of us pops up. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to know you better, to be in unity with you, and by being in unity with you and your Holy Spirit, then we can know your, know your commands. Not just know them in our head, but know them in our heart and walk them out and they won't be burdensome to us because your will will be our will. Yeah, guide us as we want to be salt and light in this world around us. In Jesus' name we pray.